From Mopi.co, this is The Flagship Pod, a weekly live podcast about the stock market, the economy, and the various market forces powering the world around you. As always, I'm your host, Peter Starr, bringing you this time, honestly, you know, kind of a toss-up week. We expected earnings season to start off with a little bit more bear sentiment than it did, and after a couple of banks reported, you know, a little bit negative earnings, we've seen a lot of sideways, and if not that, positive motion during this first half of earnings season. Of course, the big leagues of earnings season starts next week when we have the likes of Microsoft, Meta, then Apple going out. So a lot of really interesting things happening in the market, a lot of really interesting long tail stuff. What's really exciting about bear markets is you'd start to see a lot of future planning from some of the big players and a lot of consolidation in the smaller players. And we're beginning to see a lot of those rumblings happening right now. To take me through the complicated sort of situation here we have on the bear market side, as always, I'm joined by Justin Kramer, CEO, co-founder, and chief analyst here at Moby.co. Justin, man, what's good, dude? How are you parsing the markets right now? Kind of, kind of wild, honestly, right? Yeah, <laughs> it's pretty nuts. Uh, obviously, had a great start to the week relative to what's been going on this year. Uh, so a lot of people have been asking us, are we out? Is this the end? Um, you know, stocks also are, are up again today. So we'll get into all those questions and answers and more. Uh, but yeah, hopefully this is the start of something good. But yeah, let's, uh, let's get into it. We can get through the specifics. Exactly. So I guess main thing is, you know, a lot of us here, specifically in the Discord, were really expecting Tesla to go down much farther than it did uh, after earnings yesterday. But the only real news out of Tesla is actually just a slight decrease in uh, margins per vehicle, right? Which, when you're Tesla, you can afford because they went from like 30% down to 27% margins, which still makes them the highest margin automaker, by, like aside from like Lamborghini by far, right? So looking at that, is this something where we're seeing Q2 not being as bearish as we expect Q3 to be? Like, is this one of those things where we're not really seeing all of the recessionary slash inflationary pressure hit yet? Are we going to see like the real nightmare begin in Q3? Like, how do you parse this when you see things like uh, Tesla and Netflix earnings come out? Yeah, so it's interesting. And so for Netflix, I mean, they're in an odd spot, uh, given kind of where they sit. They're still losing a million subscribers a quarter and, you know... (laughs) It's baked in. So when they lost 970K this quarter instead of a million, the stock goes up. It really goes to show you where they're at. Um, but for Tesla, what they're doing unique, and they've been doing it for a while, is trying to vertically integrate, not have to worry about other people. So if the supply chain gets stunted, inflation goes up, at least they can own parts of it. And so their internal costs will go up. Therefore, margins can remain relatively constant. So it's a super boring way of basically just saying Tesla is continuing to do it better than everyone else. They'll inevitably run into more problems as they continue to scale with a lot of upfront costs. Um, but this like real fear of a recession um, is, is very precautionary. Like no one knows if it'll come, when it'll come, um, but people are just starting to prepare. So everyone's cutting back spending, cutting back other things, which subsequently hurts them. But if you look at the actual like economic conditions, things are still pretty good. I mean, jobless claims and unemployment starting to pick back up, but they're still like relative to history, really solid. Um, You look at like wage growth, you look at economic output, like the numbers are still relatively good, um, but everyone is just really scared of kind of the the forward-looking consequences. Exactly. And it's one of those things where we're seeing, you know, a lot of fear, but a lot of like that fear being sort of tempered by honestly the market, like we say, just pricing in inflation. The CPI came out last week and then JP Morgan and Morgan Stanley came out as well with sort of negative earnings as those two banks need to be a little bit more defensive just in case there are defaults on um, 
on loans because of re recessionary pressure. But what's interesting is like Charles Schwab, Visa, these companies come out and they're honestly doing fairly positively well because they don't have that same kind of inve investment pressure. They have just sort of the positive of inflation boosting their revenue. So as you look at this, as you sort of look at the inflationary landscape, have we been kind of over worried or is it just that the inflation is as expected, it's all just priced in and now we're just trying to see who's weaker basically? Yeah, so a lot of the inflation is priced in, like whether it's in the equity markets or in the crypto markets, a lot of it is priced in at this point, like can it keep sliding down 100%? But a really cool indicator to look at, which I can't believe I'm saying this is an indicator, was when Elon Musk comes out and they say Tesla sold 75% of their Bitcoin and the price doesn't really budge. Um, historically, he does anything, whether it's positive or negative in Bitcoin X, like reacts accordingly. The fact that like they sold off like millions and millions and millions, hundreds of millions of dollars of Bitcoin and the price didn't move just shows you how much this stuff is priced in at this point. And, you know, Tesla buying or selling Bitcoin shouldn't be a barometer for how the actual crypto will do. But it's just really interesting in using that as an analogy to know like where we are in the cycle right now. And so inflation is actually starting to calm down. I know like the 9.1 print scared a lot of people, but when you take out energy uh, right now, the, the rest of like kind of core inflation is starting to actually track back down, which a lot of people weren't reporting on. Energy is, you know, continuing to be a supply chain issue, a production issue, constraint issue. So, I mean, those are things that just need to work itself out, but actual core inflation in the US is starting to come back down. So the outlook is starting to change a little bit. It's still too early to say if this is the bottom, but I think as we cautioned, as we told a lot of our premium members and and other people have been following a while back in December. We thought that first half of the year would be really rough. It obviously was very rough. And the second half of the year, we'd start to see a recovery. So I don't necessarily think we're there yet. And a positive week in the markets doesn't mean that, you know, we're going to be flying the other way. But as we've been telling everyone, timing the market is impossible. No one can do it. So the best thing you can do is put a little bit of money in every single month and like be able to dollar cost average yourself down so that when things do rebound you're able to ultimately capture the upside because what one thing we can say pretty confidently is that when it does rebound it's going to be a sharp rebound and it's going to rebound fast and so if you're not invested you're going to be upset so timing the absolute bottom is not should not be your goal what you should be doing is trying to get close to the bottom and buying on the way down and so that even if it slides another 10% down, when it goes 100% up, at least you capture 90% of the upside versus trying to time the bottom, missing it and missing 100% of the upside. That should be the goal right now. So if we are or aren't at the bottom, I don't think is the right question. The, the right question is, are we close? And I think we are relatively close. Exactly. And audience, if you want sort of like the opposite view, the only other argument we can possibly make that anyone can possibly make is that what you're seeing right now is sort of a classic bear market, which is an extended, very slow drawdown in the markets. And it's going to be really hard to tell whether that's a very slow bear market being lifted by a minor bear market rally by just slightly better than expected news, or if this was just kind of like an overblown tech 
recession. I'll get into that thesis in just a second. So theory one is we're very close to the bottom and we're going to really test that bottom once we get earnings data from Facebook, Google, and all of them next week. And the other thesis is that we're not going to see the bottom until we get um, Q3 earnings in October when people sort of freak out about how expensive things were to get revenue in during Q3. Regardless, it's still kind of a classic recession rather than like a once in a generation type deal, right? But if you look at the other side, what this is more or less looking like, if you are a premium member of Mobi.co and you're reading our research, as we break down the CPI and as we break down sort of how the market is digesting earnings, what you're beginning to see is that rather than this being classic broad-based inflation, what this is is inflation being driven primarily by energy, housing, and food prices. Therefore, it's a it is inflation of necessities, i.e. inflation that disproportionately affects people on the sort of bottom half of the economic scale here in America, sort of like the bottom maybe 70%. Meanwhile, it's a recession for just tech workers because the only place you're seeing layoffs are in these high-growth tech companies. You're seeing Tesla freeze hiring, Google just announcing that it's going to freeze hiring, Facebook, Amazon, every big tech company that took the huge amount of cash that came out during the bull run post-2020, now freezing all of that hiring or laying off sort of their bottom 20% now that they can't sort of fuel huge amounts of rocket fuel. That's a very interesting kind of tale of two cities, right? Because what you're seeing is only the... Uh, majority of like the bottom half of the economy getting really affected by inflation because it's just necessities while consumer spending still stays up if you look at Visa and Charles Schwab's recent earnings reports. Meanwhile, only folks in the tech scene are getting laid off, which is, you know, neither here nor there. Like, it's still difficult, but it's like a white-collar recession, whereas recessions we've dealt with in 2020 and 2008 were very much either broad-based economy recessions or blue-collar recessions. So honestly, just really interesting to see that dichotomy, too, and really interesting to see it play out. But Justin, when you kind of look at that and you look at sort of the strategy here, is it just... DCA all the way, since we're either in the very beginning 20% of the downturn or about to enter into the actual bottom? Or is there any other way to play it besides just kind of like making small moves to make sure that you're sort of ahead of the bottom as we either really quickly approach it or very slowly approach a lower bottom, a higher bottom than, we're real than we are currently realizing? So I think like the things you need to be doing is not necessarily outside of like dollar cost averaging, like actively, you know, making any moves i think what we should be looking at is stocks that are like severely severely depressed whose long-term outlooks are intact like this is kind of you know <laughs> everyone looks back and says hey i wish i got involved like this was so obvious next time it comes around do it well next time around is now there are stocks that are down 85 90 percent from their all-time highs and you know maybe they don't regain that all-time high over the next five ten years because valuations were so ridiculous but even if they get 50 percent of that all-time high relative to the price they're at now, the upside is insane. And again, as a long-term investor, this is one of the benefits we get. If we fundamentally believe in a company and it's down huge, even if it takes five, 10 years for it to rebound, well, you're getting it at rock bottom prices, you're not getting it at another time. So rather than saying, I'm gonna dollar cost average down, like this is just a time to get it at the, at the rock bottom relative to what it could be in like 10 years. So like Twilio is a stock, we recommended, you know, it did terrible. The rest of the tech names will not like try and hide from that at all. But what we do know is that it's down huge and the valuation is now versus what it could be in a decade from now is so severely like misaligned that we just know it's such a good opportunity that even if it takes a while to regain its recent top, at the very least, there is severe upside relative to where it is now. And it doesn't matter what asset you are, what class you're in, 
stocks are just getting discriminated against regardless of sectors and it honestly creates a good buying opportunity so when the when this ultimate rebound comes who knows um but i think more importantly is just be able to kind of look at the positions you have if you fundamentally believe in it add to it if you don't you know you you can choose to sell it but this is a, that kind of once in a generational sell-off that presents buying opportunities that you know in a few years from now you'll wish you got involved but probably didn't because it is scary buying when things are going down and that's a really good point too and the only risk audience because i know you hear that and you think okay this is this is the bottom this is the historic moment what's the counter argument there and i'm only providing this to be a contrarian the only real risk to that sort of idea of that this being the bottom is that you're just never going to see tech companies achieve the truly ridiculous price to earnings ratios they did you know, during the sort of 2011 to 2020 nine-year, like, gilt, neo-gilded age, right? You'll just never see the market believe that tech companies are worth their truly ridiculous valuations. Now, we could get there again, but even if we get halfway back there, that's still getting an, like, an astonishing return on your investment in terms of sort of not quite timing the bottom, but making sure that you're adding to your tech positions now as they sort of continue their slide. That slide can continue for only just the next three months. It can continue for the next six months. But all, odds are we're either approaching the bottom or, you know, uh, not going as far down as we recognize. So keep that in mind, you know? Yeah, the thing, the thing to watch for, too, is like the Fed's not being accommodated. So if like, you're wondering why this bubble burst that Peter's referring to, it's like, yes, we had this 10-year period where everyone knew things were overvalued, but it didn't matter because inflation was low, interest rates were low, and monetary policy was very accommodative. But for the first time in a decade, things changed. And because interest rates go up, those like future cash flows become severely worth less uh, for a handful of reasons. So yes, like while rates are rising, it's going to be hard for these things to like resume their ridiculous valuations they were for the last 10 years. But Rates will reverse at some point. Like they're not going to go up forever. At some point, the economy is going to get stronger. Inflation is going to go down, and then the Fed is going to potentially, to get us out of a recession that they put us in, have to start lowering rates and stimulating the economy again. And so, like this is just part of economic cycles. And as rates go down, things will be valued at higher for the same exact, you know, earnings and revenue ratio. So. I mean, it's a long-winded way of saying this stuff works in decades, not years, not even months. Um, and the only way to really build wealth and public equities is to think like this. You know, day trading, it's it's going to be a losing game in the long run. It's like going to the casino. You you can put 100 bucks on black and win and walk out a big winner. But we both know if you go to the casino every day for a year, you're going to end up losing. Although I will I will say that if you if you have retested the bottom a few times and you've kind of like been two years into a bull run, day trading can be extremely fun. Like it's very addictive. Not oh, to so yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Fun, not advisable. But I mean, if you if you have cash to burn, there's worse ways to burn it. Let me tell you what. Anyway, Justin, let's kind of drill down and get a little granular here, so we're not talking in too broad terms. So one one company we've been really excited about that's approaching its bottom. We may have actually. Um, been a little bit too early and not necessarily calling its bottom and saying it's a good time to buy is Delta. We put out research uh, right before their earnings call saying, hey, Delta's looking extraordinarily undervalued. Then Delta's like, hey, 
our margins are still getting hit pretty hard and their stock value went down a little bit further post that. Uh, looking at sort of that two-day delta between you, your analysis and uh, Delta's earnings call, how's, how's the brand looking now in terms of, you know, inflation, you know, fuel, co fuel costs obviously hitting them pretty hard as well as just overall inflation kind of impacting them across the board. How's the, how's the Delta brand looking? How's the Delta valuation looking in terms of um, are they approaching a bottom or, is, or are they still a good buy? Yeah, I think they're, they are approaching a bottom. Um, they've been on a slide ever since April, so it's been roughly a year. So obviously timing the absolute bottom is <laughs> the theme of this conversation today is near impossible. But I think this is a really time to to potentially start initiating more of a position in Delta. And there's there's a handful of reasons. I think without spending the next 10 to 15 minutes talking about what those reasons are, let's just you know, highlight the, the three most important things we're looking at. So one, exactly your point, is jet fuel. Uh, jet fuel has been on the rise for a while, but it's actually down 20 to 30 percent since uh, since its peak earlier this year. Um, so jet fuel is starting to come back down, uh, which is acting as a tailwind for de Delta, uh, which has been a headwind for the last year. Even though they've been able to pass on a lot of these costs to their consumers, it ultimately just like it's not good for anyone. But What's really exciting is seeing like this continued resurgence of travel. So everything that we talk about in travel is relative to pre-pandemic. Obviously, a lot more people are traveling then, so we're always talking about it as a percentage of what it is pre-pandemic. So corporate travel was restored by over 75%. Um, last quarter, this quarter, it's up to 80% which is only on 65% volume, which shows like the pricing power Delta has. And then international travel last quarter was at 50% restored. And now it's actually looking to be at 60%, um, uh, or sorry, 65% through the end of the year and 60% of total bookings for international are already sold. So again, we're still at pre-2019 levels for Delta specifically, but they're actually starting to rebound pretty significantly. And if the trend continues, there's no reason that in 2023 and 2024, they won't be able to surge past what they were pre-pandemic, which if we think about it, is pretty insane considering there is definitely a pandemic still going on. So it really speaks to the, the strength of Delta's demand and brand. Um, and then past that, as fuel prices come down, this is gonna be huge for Delta as well to increase margins. They won't have to necessarily cancel as many flights, which has been in the headlines everywhere. They've already had in the first 11 days of the month, 99% of flights arriving on time and not being canceled. So there was a lot of things working against them over the last quarter or two, but fuel costs are coming down, cancellations and staffing, uh, staffing's going up, cancellations are going down, and we're starting to continuously see this, this recovery uh, for their, their travel, both domestically uh, and internationally. So yes, is, could the stock price keep falling 100%, but I think given where they are now at a, a $20 billion valuation, it's starting to make a lot of sense to get involved. I mean, Rivian, <laughs> which obviously has a much larger upside, is worth $30 billion. So like, if we're talking about how things are, are really valued, I mean, Delta is definitely below what it should be. Absolutely. And, you know, we will have more of a thesis on Rivian maybe next week as we sort of like re-examine the EV market. But let's stay on the topic of jet fuel real fast, because one thing that's being super underreported, well, one thing that was overreported on the negative side and now being underreported on the positive side is that last week the Nord Stream, two, the Nord Stream 1 pipeline from Russia to Germany was shut down, which absolutely spiked natural gas prices on fears that even though the pipeline was being shut down for routine maintenance, there was some market concerns that Putin would just be like, oh, sorry, it's still broken. 
um, gotta keep it off, sorry, that sort of thing. So the fact that it's back on is going to have a lot of relief on European energy prices. It's not nearly going to go down to pre-war levels, but the fact that there's still some level of playing ball is absolutely huge. So you're going, to, you are already seeing oil prices go down a little bit. You're going to see them go down more, but that still gets to this overall macro narrative, Justin, that you and I have been very lightly talking about in the off times. We're not talking about individual stocks and individual moments within the U.S. economy, and that's this idea of isolationism and defense on these sort of isolationism and sort of like not the breakdown of the global order, but sort of a you're seeing a lot of defensive investment from various world economies on both the oil and energy on the energy and defense side. Can you kind of take me through that? What's going on in terms of sort of uh, globalization getting tested right now? Oh, sorry, <laughs> it was on mute. Uh, you mind just repeating that last part? My apologies. No, it's all good. So yeah, uh, just just the main question about isolationism on the defense slash oil side. Like, what's going on with all these countries that are thinking more sort of like themselves first on the energy and defense side? Yeah, I mean, the, the energy price is good. I thought you brought up a really good point about the, the pipeline going on. I mean, right now, we talked about this yesterday, there's just not enough energy being produced. And a lot of countries are starting to get very defensive in how they produce energy. So for example, like in Europe, they get a lot of their natural gas from Russia, as you mentioned. Uh, and so when they start shutting off natural gas, they start shutting off oil exports, it just like creates like these shortages. And so countries become very dependent on other countries. And so now they're reinvesting in infrastructure to become more self-sufficient, but such a multi-year project and doesn't help in the short run that it's going to continuously push prices in the wrong direction. It looks like Russia is starting to export more uh, of their natural gas and oil, which is good for prices. A lot of this just comes down to the geopolitical, which is really tough to, to say. But at least domestically, uh, for us here in the U.S., it's, uh, it's a little bit better of a situation. The, the U.S. is sitting on massive oil reserves. They're able to leverage a lot of the oil that they produce internally for our capabilities here. And that's why, yes, gas at five bucks sucks. But if you look at Europe, gas is like seven, eight, nine, ten dollars So it's a lot worse over there. Uh, so fortunately, we're, we're in a better position, but still in a, a poor position overall. We still import a lot of gas from Canada and other parts of the world. And unlike what people will have you believe, oil is not oil. And so what I mean by that is there's different types of oil. There's different types of refineries that refine those different types of oil. So while we do produce a ton of oil, all the refineries here in the US, US are not set up for all the oil we produce here. So long story short, we are not self-sufficient. We need to also rely on other countries. Um, but ultimately, you know, we're, we're in a much better position than, than others. Uh, same thing with the defense outside of that. So think military and all those things. We're, we're in a much better position there as well. And it's one of those things where we're going to see a lot of improvements as well. So it's one of those things where you're seeing an extremely complicated narrative. And if you want to sort of see a better breakdown of that, we actually... Um, another one of our analysts, Moby Meme Guy, actually did a pretty good breakdown of what's happening with oil prices on both our Instagram and our TikTok. If you want a better understanding of what's happening, if we are so desperate with high gas prices, why are we exporting 8.6 million barrels of oil? Um, which is just basically because we, we, are, we are in an open market and if we just only were isolationist entirely, um, you know, we'd piss off a lot of people, but at least we'd make our gas prices relatively cheaper, but then potentially spike everything else. It's pretty complex, but what's good is that it's finally starting to trend in the right direction. But obviously there's still a lot of supply chain issues that we have to be concerned about. There's always going to be COVID 
concerns that could you know blow up those supply chains but overall energy is trending in the right direction which if it does means we'll see inflation start trending in the right direction the main encouragement the market is seeing is that the 9.1 percent inflation we saw was based on data from june while gas prices were beginning to go down by the end of june into the middle of july where we are now so we're really excited to see next month's cpi print be at least a little bit lower and potentially signal that inflation did peak with this last cpi again We'll see, because there's no way to predict this. There's a lot of other factors that can affect what's going on here. It's not just energy prices pushing inflation up. It's all of these complicated inter interactions within our global supply chain. So getting to the back half of this, I guess just in the main thing, you know, uh, one thing I'm really excited about talking about now, I'm going to preview this for next week probably, is as this bear market narrative matures, we're going to enter into something called consolidation season, where you're going to see, you know, Bigger companies with slightly better management start gobbling up littler ones or smaller um, players begin to combine together. It's something that happens during every downturn. Um, this is why, audience, you're getting two perspectives, always from Obi.co. You're getting the analytical perspective from folks like our chief analyst, Justin Kramer, and you're going to get more of the journalistic perspective from folks like me. Journalists, you know, can kind of smell the air and see what's happening on the consolidation side, whereas analysts can kind of predict the beginning, middle, and end of various actual market cycles and give you balls and strikes on a company-by-company -company basis. I'm very excited for some consolidations that may be happening in healthcare, but I'm not going to sort of talk about that till I've done a little bit more research and, you know, run it by the anal analysis team. For now, though, Justin, we've been talking about defense, so can you kind of give us, with the last couple of minutes we have here, a preview on sort of what you've been seeing on the Lockheed Martin side of things as we think about sort of defense? Yeah, totally. I think we touched upon on that last piece, but I think I'm I'm happy to elaborate more there. So basically right now, Lockheed Martin, for those of you who don't know, is this massive defense contractor in the U.S. And I think it ties in really nicely to what we were just talking about. And this is really big like point to take home for how the world's going to react over the next several years. But basically, like we have this era where everyone is isolated in terms of countries and everyone's interconnected. And now, not that everyone is isolated, but people realize the dangers of being interconnected and not being self-sufficient. So countries like the United States is looking to completely overhaul how they import energy, how they import all the goods they need for the purpose of having a more sustainable nation that doesn't rely on others, and then is ultimately like less of a national security threat. So specifically within that defense, our military is a massive piece that the Pentagon is looking at. And so what we're seeing right now is they're actually undertaking a, a generational investment as they're gearing up for like kind of this fight of the future, which we'll call it. And this hasn't been seen in a while. And we think that will ultimately like provide Lockheed and a lot of these defense contractors with multi-year growth for defense in a way they've never seen before. And this is like really irrespective of whatever happens in the Ukraine. And so we're just really seeing like this you know, strong area for companies like Lockheed, for Palo Alto Networks, as the U.S. looks to like shore up its defensive capabilities. Um, the reason being, as I mentioned, is like this isolationism. Um, and so this narrow focus on like the Ukraine and risks and over like overwhelming dynamics at play in defense and, and decades of focus on counterterrorism and counterinsurgency um, and kind of like this repeated deferral of modernization that's that is the reason the Pentagon is just taking this massive uh, investment as it shifts its attention to like China and Russia and other competition like that. And so a lot of these systems are going to be completely modernized. They're buying, you know, 
new physical goods like planes and tanks. They're buying new cybersecurity. I mean, they're just ripping out a lot of things that are just mountains of tech debt. And so we're going to come up with a lot of different picks on this, but Lockheed, which we're going to be releasing next week, is a pick that we're really bullish on. And we we actually saw the Pentagon sign into an agreement with them for over um, 15 to 17 F-35s uh, and a bunch of other planes. So long story short, this I think this is a brand new major theme for us is this idea and notion of the complete overhaul of the U.S. government um, in terms of like the infrastructure. And so Lockheed is one of them. And this is going to be a big theme for us over the next several years. Regardless, though, it is a very interesting period because not only is this period of like the war of the future unprecedented, but if we allow ourselves to go back to the nature of conflict that happened, you know, let's say the late late 19th and early 20th centuries, that would be the actual apocalypse. And so what's very interesting to see is sort of beyond the Cold War, what we're going to be doing in terms of maintaining um, growth and self-sufficiency across all of these nations as we move into this very bizarre future where our global world order was very massively tested by this pandemic. Regardless, it's a very interesting time, but the thing we're going to be more inter- the most interested in moving forward is just watching how the world economy has reacted to our food supply, our energy supply, and all of our necessities being really heavily hammered by both supply chain woes and then a completely unnecessary and random war that happened in Eastern Europe. So a lot of Echoes are going to be happening for years to come, but you can still watch the narrative as they play out on a month-by-month basis. Regardless, folks, we are here a little bit over time. Justin Kramer, CEO and co-founder here at Moby.co. Any final thoughts from you before we go ahead and read the credits here? Again, I'm amazed this was 30 minutes, but you know how it goes. Yeah, 100%. No, uh, I think it's good. There's a, a lot of topics that we only scratched the surface on. Um, and so if you guys want more details, definitely head to the site. We write up Delta... Lockheed, a lot of these stocks in a lot more detail. So definitely employ you to, to check it out. Whether you're paid member, free, there there's a lot of free resources. We're going to be opening up a lot more uh, for, for our free users soon to add value there as well. So yeah, like I said, if there there's any other questions, definitely go there. If not, obviously join the Discord. If you're listening to us on a later version, ask us questions. We're, we're always more than help, happy to kind of jump in. Has to be Lockheed, right? Anyway, audience, thank you so much for hanging out with us here. Thank you so much for um, you know, your questions as well. And thank you so much for your perspective as we move forward here and you begin to sort of understand the true nature of this bear market. Again, it's really looking like, again, unprecedented. Every single economic moment has a lot of really interesting foibles. Um, did not start, but did consolidate. Anyway, so the, the main question, the main idea here is, audience, you know, stick to the course. This is not going to be something historic like 2008, but it is going to be historic in the sense that no confluence of factors has ever played out like this before. It can be either very short and overblown, which may be happening right now, or it could be a little bit longer, but not as bad as people are predicting. Regardless, stick to your plan, stay consistent, and the only way to lose this game is to be a forced seller. So, you know, avoid leverage for the time being, avoid most crypto for the time being. We're going to have another report on sort of what speculation we're doing on the back end here as we sort of watch the tail end of crypto, either the very beginning or tail end of crypto winter. Regardless, audience, if you ever have any questions for us, you can hit us up here in Discord or email us at hello at moby.co. Regardless, audience, I really appreciate your time. This is a pretty solid place to end it, though. Just so you know, this podcast was produced, hosted, and voiced by me. All of our sort of intellectual value here comes from our analyst team, led by Justin Kramer, CEO and co-founder here at Moby.co. If you have any questions for us, hit us up at hello at Moby.co. Otherwise, we really appreciate your time. And as always, we'd like to leave you with peace, love, and incremental gains. Everyone be well. Thank you so much.